Up next, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Good morning. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Thank you for joining us. And we've got a fascinating show, an enjoyable show, an exciting show. Uh, we're discussing politics with Tane Webster and we cover off the difference between the party vote and the electric vote and why to the parties, it's only the party vote that counts unless they're in a special situation, which we'll explain. And we also cover off why is it that around the world, provincial rural areas tend to vote conservative while the cities vote left? Well, we hypothesize about why that might be the case. And we also have an interview with Donald McIntosh, also known as Mad Mac. And when you hear this interview, <laughs> you're going to know why he's called Mad Mac at times. He's a real Kiwi, a, a Barry Crump type Kiwi, but real. And the sort of guy that we modeled ourselves on and aspired to be in so many ways and who are not around anymore. We don't make Mad Max anymore, but it's the Mad Max that have made New Zealand what it is, the great country that it is. And I got him on to talk about hemp and a little bit of power, and we talked a little bit of power, and we talked a lot about Max life, which is an amazing life. And a little bit about this new interest of mine, and I hope yours, hemp. But we were blessed to be joined by Mad Mac. You're going to enjoy that interview. Thank you for joining us. And remember, I love getting your texts. So send me a text at 2057 or email me at inbox at This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Well, we've got a real talker coming up that you're going to love. I just know I'm going to love this. I know I'm going to love this. Uh, I knew of this guy 40 years ago. Never met him, but I knew of him because 40 years ago he was a legend. Uh, for what he got up to and how he did things. He lived life at 100 miles an hour, and he's done a lot of things, and he's got a lot of wisdom. And I'm talking about Donald McIntosh, who um, we refer fondly to as Mad Mac um, or Mac. But the Mad Mac sort of fits, doesn't it, Mac? It does indeed. And I, over the years, have become quite proud of it. Um, and these days, just about everybody that knows me calls me that, and there's nothing nasty in it. Nothing um, nasty. People said it, Mad Mac, with a sense of reverence and admiration, and there's a, a video of you made that I watched, and you lived the sort of life that I would want to live. I lived the boy's own adventure. 
and that's part of that that's an asset and it's a deficit and my life has been an adventure and I get to a stage where other people would say well okay I'm good at this uh righty I'll take an office job now and I'll be the head of the team my attitude is well I've been there I've done that that's boring now what's next what's yes. the next challenge that I could take on <laughs> And it must have been awful for some of the people tagging along with me, um, specifically people that um, I had children with. Uh, I do feel for them to the degree that, that it would be a very difficult life uh, for most people to live because it was either feast or famine and you didn't know where you were going to be tomorrow. Well, that suited me. But it doesn't suit most people and it doesn't suit children who need to go to school and all that sort of thing. Well, so, it's this great man syndrome, isn't it, that um, there are great men uh, who achieve incredible things and you see their wives and their children crushed because uh, a man that's out there on a mission um isn't necessarily the loving, caring husband and father. I loved and cared, but as you saw from the video, if it was Christmas Day and it was right to go power fishing, I was off. Yes. Um, and it, it was time and place. The time is right now. The place is out there. Uh, and that made it very difficult for people making arrangements um, because we might be there and we might not. Um, Let's get into that. Let's get into that, Mac, because you're a philosopher and let's delve into it. What year were you born, Mac? 1949. 1949. And where were you born? Palmerston. Palmerston North or Palmerston Palmerston South? Palmerston in the South Island. The and I'm Palmerston. an Aquarius. <laughs> the real Palmerston. Yes. And you grew up in Palmerston? No. Um, uh, Mum... Uh, separated from my father very early on, um, and I wound up being fostered while mum went to work. So I spent my time in Lawrence um, at the home there. She wanted that home because there were less kids there. Uh, there was only 13 of us. Um, that was uh, as good as it could be time in my life. Um, other foster pl uh, places I stayed at in Dunedin. So most of my early time was Dunedin, and then at eight, this guy came along and uh, my grandma told me he was my new dad. <laughs> and I thought to myself, no, he's not. I don't even know who this guy is. Uh, anyway, we then went and lived up in Christchurch. Uh, so he married, stayed... he, he married your mum? Yes. Mm. And I went up to meet my sister, uh, who was about six months old. Uh, and that was quite good. Um my father had been in the Second World War, and I think that wrecked him because he, uh, um, I don't want to disrespect him, but he was an alcoholic after that. Mm. And um, Ray was a presser and a dry cleaners. And <laughs> it wasn't exactly exactly the model I was looking for, if that makes sense. Yes. Uh, what's your dad do? Oh, he's a presser and a dry cleaners. Really? <laughs> Yeah. Well, I had the Look, best. Look, he was, a, he was a good man. He was a good man. Yes, I had the best dad in the world because yeah. I grew up in Rangura and my father was a truck driver. 
and he always had the best truck with the biggest trailer on board. And I just love trucks and trailers. And when my dad would drive down the main street, all the little kids would stop to look at this magnificent machine going down the street. And I would beam with pride. That was my dad driving that beast. Isn't it funny when you're kids? Um, And I felt sorry for the kids whose dads were lawyers and accountants. Yes, and that's kind of how I felt. I wanted a, a, a an heroic father, yes. um, and uh, sadly, pressing, he, he, he was heroic in that he looked after me and my mum until I left home. So, mm. uh, and my sister. So, you know, hats off to him. He, he was, and a in a man. funny way, <laughs> as you get older and look back, they are the real heroes. Yes, they are. They're the solid people that stay there. I say this to my son all the time. I love Mark Twain's quote. At 14, I couldn't believe how stupid my father was. At 21, I couldn't believe how much he'd learned in seven years. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and Axel can almost throw the, the quotes back at me these days because I've said them that many times, the poor wee bugger. So you left school and did what? I uh, joined the military. Um wasn't a good idea, but I'd always wanted to be a uh, saturation diver. Um, oh, really? Uh, you wanted to be a saturation diver when you are at school? Oh, yes. One of my school teachers was a diver, Mr Phillips, and uh, that was at Phillipstown School in Christchurch. And um, I, I never lost the passion for wanting to be a diver. And Jack Cousteau and people like that. Were oh, Jack Cousteau, when I was a kid on the TV, I loved that show in Calypso. Me too. And, and, of course, he he was one of the two men that, in, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, that invented the Aqualung. Yes, he was. And, and uh, great stuff has come from what he's done. Yes. Uh, and and what's, I, a sat, what's a saturation diver compared to a diver? Saturation diver means you uh, work with mixed gases and that. You know, if you go over 196 feet, you're too deep to breathe the air that we breathe uh, at the surface level. Under compression, you will get all sorts of problems. Uh, um, the oxygen at the at the content it is then will can kill you. Um, you get nitrogen narcosis, which can make you uh, see things that aren't there. Um, wow. I can remember on a, a dive uh, as a navy. It was in the navy. It was near Wakatani, and I was probably only down two hundred feet. And I can remember saying to them, "Oh, I can see the most beautiful iridescent blue manta rays." Well, they hooked me up to the surface as quickly as they could <laughs> get me up there. The reality was, I wasn't hallucinating at all. There was a manta ray, and at that depth. He was moving through the water and all the um, little uh, creatures that he was disturbing were glowing. So I was giving a very accurate description of what I saw at that But they thought you were hallucinating. Yeah. (laughs) So you went into the Navy. Had you already been diving by then? Yes, yes. I'd done all the courses I could do at the the civilian... uh, Ones and I did want to go to the US um, and go to diving school over there, but my parents couldn't afford it. Um, and the next 
the only other way I could get there was the military. Now, look, man, the military was a really bad idea. If but you were, am, you were you were very ambitious. Like there, you were at Phillipstown School, Christchurch, in the yes. what would it be early nineteen sixties? I'm guessing. Yes. And you are wanting to be this diver, yes. and not just puddle around Kaikoura. No, and actually, get serious. Yes, very definitely. You're ambitious. You had it in you. I don't know if it was ambitious. I, uh, yes, I suppose it was. It was just um, looking back on it, and I've never done this before. Um, I suppose. I wanted to be able to make a difference. Um, I had already uh, formulated views about uh, how we were treating this planet, um, even at, at, uh, at early school days, and I was bothered by that, and I was bothered by a lot of the things I saw going on around me, not to the degree that I am these days, but conscious of... We shouldn't be doing that. Mm. Uh, we should be doing something a wee bit different. What I th meant by that, I, I've no idea. It wasn't until I got to high school that I started to formulate um, uh, the areas that I wanted to go. Um, and I was always top of my class. So I had the background to be able to make more choices than a lot of people could in my day. Okay. However, I was stupid enough not to go to university. Um, uh, I think what I might have been good at was being a scientist, but yes. I didn't do, go that route. I should say for people listening that we're going to get onto this, but uh, Mad Mac, amongst other things, um, drove and pioneered the power business, which in the early days, the divers were diving for a pittance. And Mad Mac with, got around him a crew, organised the divers, and this is why you'll keep listening, made them all millionaires probably, um, and turned a little business into an industry. It's, in it's, it's an astonishing story, and we're going to lead up into that, and I'm sorry for not taking you to one of the uh, exciting points because we're wanting to do the lead up and understand how you came to do that because you did change New Zealand in that regard and I'm going to get there. How old were you when you joined the Navy, Matt? Um, I think I was just, I, I was too old to be a seaman boy. Uh, so it was either 16 or 17. How did you find it? Oh, I hated it. Um, I loved the only time I was at peace and in my element was when I was at the diving school. And they kept telling me I was too young um, to go to the diving school. So I went for a wee ticky tour for six weeks, went down to Taupo, absent without leave, um, uh, stacking wood and that sort of thing. And when I went back, um, uh, I got... Um, Oh, I can't remember whether it was 14 or 28 days number nines. And as soon as I was finished that, I went to the diving school. Nice. What's number nines? Ah, oh, it's punishment. Uh, you do your eight hours work and then you do two hours more in the morning and 
two hours more at night, and then after supper, you do another two hours. So, and that might be scrubbing floors, uh, cleaning out toilets, stuff like that. Mm. And where were you based uh, in the Navy at that time? That was Fillmore at the time in Auckland. Okay. And what was diving school? Diving school was different. Um, uh, there was none of the square bashing nonsense or any of that sort of thing. Everybody knew your life depended on the guy next to you. So it was quite different. And when they started to realise that not only could I do it, but I wanted to do it and I relished it, um, those were my happiest times. My unhappy times were when I was put on, uh, I was on the Kayama for a while, um, which was a wee minesweeper and the Blackpool for a while, which was a, a frigate. Um, none of those times were satisfactory to me. Uh, the only times that were satisfactory were at the diving school. And um, eventually, uh, Rodney, I got um, uh, services no longer required. Um, and you were a square peg in a round hole sort of I thing. was. I was. I was and, in and, absolutely the wrong place. It's like that, the, the, the Captain Marriott's, Mr. Midshipman Easy. I questioned everything. <laughs> you don't do that in the military. No. You know, wash the upper deck with freshest mat. Well, I've done that. Well, use your initiative. Do something else. Then the next minute you're told you're not paid to think. So I, I couldn't meld these two things together. Yeah. I'll use your initiative. You're not paid to think. And I had real difficulty with that. And I queried things that I would have these days been better off doing what I tell my son. Look, tick the boxes, mate, and be quiet. And diving school taught you to dive better. What what did you – you could already dive, so what extra was diving school in the Navy? Uh, The the mixed gases and that sort of thing became better. I never really um, did that well. Uh, even in that aspect of it, until um, I got out into the civilian world again. Okay. Um, so how long and, did you last in the Navy? Uh, I think about four and a half years. Mm. So you came out of the Navy and you could dive extremely well. I was adequate. And there are not a lot of divers, I guess, in those days. No. So then what? Uh, eventually I wound up, I I did a bit of saturation diving around the world and then I wound up, a friend of mine was working at Stewart Island and I went over there, he asked me uh, to go over and weld crapops and I went over and did that but I would keep taking off uh, to do other things Um, and eventually he decided that he really couldn't employ me so um, I got a 14-foot X-Class racing yacht that was for sale cheap, and I went power diving in it. And um, until I got shipwrecked, uh, I got quite a few power in that, but the locals were all really annoyed with me. And, you know, you need a motor. They were almost going to band together and buy me a motor. But I was coming back from uh, the neck, which everybody that knows Stuart Island knows where that is it's to the south of half moon bay and i'd been over there and i'd slept the night because there was a howling southwesterly probably 40 50 knots 
of wind coming through, but I had a ton of power uh, in the boat, and I thought, I've got to take this home, um, or I'm going to lose it. And I've got a bit of weight, so I should actually be able to do this. Well, it sailed like a dream. By the way, Rodney, I have n- had no idea how to sail. It can't be that hard. <laughs> <laughs> this is um, why you're Mad Mac, right? Yeah, and so it took off, and uh, I never hit a reef, but just before I got to, to the open sea and around towards Ringeringa, and then I would have been uh, home and hose and safe, um, I hit some kelp on the surface. That tore the skeg out of the boat. The boat got ripped in half. I was shipwrecked. Um, I stayed on the beach for, uh, I'd say, about a week. I kept thinking, I saw fishing boats going past, so I kept thinking, surely they're looking for me. They'll find me eventually, uh, but they didn't. Um, and I'd eaten a raw seagull, and oh, my goodness, so fishy, it's unbelievable. And I thought, I'm getting sick of this. So I had a, uh, a packet of um, carrots and peas, dried carrots and peas, and uh, a big um, tin of honey. And I thought, I've got to swim back. Um, I am not going to survive uh, out here if if I don't do something for myself. That I could walk all the way around, that would take weeks, or I could swim back. So it was easy for a start, Rodney, eating this uh, dried peas mixed with honey. But by the time I got to the bottom of <laughs> that tin, I never wanted to see honey again in my life, but I knew I needed some energy to get back to the island. Anyway, long story short, I swam back to the island, which was probably a couple of miles, um, and Michael Gooms did the tourist tours there, and he saw me collapsed on the beach at Ringeringa, and he drove his minivan down and said, what's going on? Are you shipwrecked? And I said, yes. And he said, well, get up and we'll we'll take you in uh, to the pub. And I said, if I could get up, Michael, I wouldn't <laughs> be lying down. I'm exhausted, man. Anyway, we went into the pub. These were the days when I was still drinking, which was a really bad thing. I had a quadraphonic rum and about two pies, and I can't remember anything after that. Uh, and that was the end of it. Um, but that, you lost, lost your boat. Oh, yes. Lost my boat, lost all the powers, lost everything. And um, when you say that uh, kelp pulled the skeg out, what's the skeg? Oh, the big rudder that sticks down underneath the boat. Oh, that the probably what? sticks four feet into the water. Okay. Okay. So you, once you've lost that, you're straight over. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I was going that fast with that much weight in it that it was easy. And that's really an indicator of my life and why I enjoyed it so much, Rodney, because, okay, there were feasts and famines and there were tragedies and all that sort of thing. But, man, it was exciting. Oh, yeah. And you stayed power fishing? Yes, I stayed power fishing for a while. Um, All around the place, I also took up rig fishing and I did a wee bit of cray fishing. I worked on other people's boats. Then I managed to get my own boat. I worked at Stewart Island. I worked at Riverton. Um, And it was about this time, I would say I was in my 
mid-20s that I started to realise that we were really getting screwed. I think uh, when I started, I know that when I first went with Mr Phillips up to Kaikoura, we were getting sixpence um, a pound for scrubbed power, so all the black stuff was scrubbed off it. By this time down there, we were getting about 50 cents a kilo, and I went up and saw Sea Lords um, and Nelson and said, look, we can't live on this. This is hopeless. We're actually real fishermen, but you're paying us rubbish money. Anyway, um, that went on for uh, quite a while, and I managed to... Can I just interrupt, Mac? I'm sorry. Um, you're on Real Talk with Rodney Hyde, Really Check Radio. I just want to clarify the industry a bit because um, at that time you were diving for power with a snorkel, right? No tanks. Yes, yes. So you're air diving and you're going down and do you have a season by which you can catch them or can you catch them year? Take no, year flat away? days. If, if it's calm. That's the day you go, especially down here in the south. Um, Stewart Island, uh, everybody would wait for an easterly and then the few power divers that they were, they'd go round to Hellfire and that on the other side of the island. Okay. Um, Riverton, yeah. you don't get that many days. Down on the Catlins Coast here, um, you don't get that many days either. I've dived all around New Zealand um, and what I've noticed in the North Island is most of your powers are smaller up there but there are areas where you get bigger ones. And part of the reason for doing that, Rodney, was I wanted to understand the species. When I went shark fishing, I didn't just go shark fishing. These are rigged there, about four feet long. Uh, they were used in fish and chips. They are very nice-tasting flesh. What do they eat? They eat paddle crabs. Okay, where are the paddle crabs? So I'd set a pot to find out where the paddle crabs were. When I, once I found that out, I would set a net across that. And then um, white pointers came along and bit them all off behind the neck. So the next thing I wanted to do was know why the white pointers were there. And in those days, white pointers weren't protected, and I didn't understand them uh, specifically well at that time. So for a year or two, I went harpooning um, white pointers because it was so much better than going out and catching a tonne of blue cod. You've got two and a half tonne of um, good meat right here with one animal. But even though they've given me quite a bit of fright in the water, um, white pointers, if they'd wanted to eat me, they would have done it well by now. I can now remember. When you say you were hunting white pointers, you're in the water. No, no. Uh, I, I was, <laughs> no, I wasn't quite that, <laughs> that bad. bad. Yeah. Um, so how no, would you catch uh, a white pointer? I had a harpoon gun and, uh, uh, I would harpoon them with three or four floats on. I only got three, four like that. And uh, as I said, I, I was swimming over this rock near Christmas Village on Stewart Island. And there must have been a, a white pointer on the other side. We met at the apex of the rock. Um, all I saw was teeth. And it must have regurgitated the contents of its stomach because it got a fright when it saw me. And I sure as hell got a fright because it, it whacked my shoulder. I think that must have been it turning around. I don't know. Um, 
I was still swimming 100 yards after I'd hit the beach, uh, Rodney. <laughs> believe you me. I, I was a long way up in the bush before I stopped panicking. Um, but I actually started to think about how magnificent these animals were. Um, and I didn't want to, to kill them anymore. So um, that was the end of that. And they were uh, two and a half ton. So, yes. Wow. There's now, a jaw of mine in Te Papa. Wow. So going back to the Hawa, you would dive down with a snorkel. Yep. Some considerable depth. Uh, most I could go to, people will think this is fairy stories. I don't really care. 100 feet, but most powers are less than 60 feet in New Zealand, around Stewart Island and up the west coast, uh, around Fusica and that sort of area, especially out in the headlands, you, you'll get really good, massive amounts of power in 60 feet of water. Um, down here in the Cheslands at Perikanui Bay, there's an area underneath the cliffs that is easy. It looks like a gravel bottom. It's not a gravel bottom, and it's not until you get down there that you realise this is all power. Um, and or so you was at that time. You'd go down, you'd have, what was it, a knife to scrape them off? I used a thing that was like a plasterer's trowel that I cut down that just had a thing about as long as my finger. I'm showing you an area about four inches long, and it was about as wide as my finger. You would slip it under the power and flip them into your hand net. And you have a hand net. And yeah. how long would you stay down for? On the breath. At the time, I was uh, capable of holding my breath for four and a half minutes. Um, you kind of felt like Superman uh, if you did a lot of power diving because you were. We were. I used to complain bitterly to the authorities that we were the only people in New Zealand that went blue in the face holding our breath while we made our money. <laughs> <laughs> I've always advocated that we should be using underwater breathing apparatus in New Zealand. It should be illegal to take a power off the rocks um, if you haven't measured it first. And my reason for that is they have no blood clotting mechanism. So if you put a little cut in them, it does, they might look all right. You're stuck back to the rock. But two weeks later, they're dead. Yes. So you're so doing you're, you're, because you're on holding your breath, yes. you're moving fast. Whereas yes. if you're on a, a tank, you'd take your time and you'd make sure you're only getting the ones that have correct size. Yes. And it seems to be, uh, it's a bit like the hemp. There's an anti-feeling against that in New Zealand, and I don't quite know why. They're allowed to use compressed air um, at the Chatham Islands, and they're like the Australians. They don't use tanks, Rodney. They use a compressor on the surface. Okay. A hose comes down. They've got a band mask. Um, and the reason for the, the uh, them being allowed it in the Chathams is a few of them have been taken by white pointers, um, so the government sensibly allowed them to do that. On the mainland, I'm not sure what it is specifically now that you've got um, a limited number of people and they're not allowed to go. I was allowed to go under my licence anywhere in New Zealand. Mm -hmm. These days, you're either Stewart Island, Catlins, Fusica, whatever. You can't and you're on a quota. Of it. And yes, you're on a quota. and you've got a quota. Now, tell me, you'd go down, you'd gather up with this net, and I've seen video of you catching 
uh, or taking power, man, you could take a lot of power in a short time. Yes, I used to say to my dinghy boys, dinghy boys are the people that would be in your little rubber inflatable and they would be following you around. Don't wash your hands when I come to the surface. I'm drowning. <laughs> Take the net off me. <laughs> and they'd lift the net up. How long would you spend at the top before going down again? Uh, it depended. Um Look, I used to have this saying, you've got to make hay while the sun shines. So I would put in incredibly long days um, and, uh, like, for instance, I went out to the Solander Islands. You can be, you know, you'd be lucky if you get uh, three days a year when you can dive out there. When you can, it's magnificent. And the powers are like dinner plates. So it doesn't take you very long to get a tonne of power out there and you'd be lucky if you could see where you've been. But I think this is what upsets people. They see the powers coming in by the ton. They don't know how much work you've done to get them. All mm. they think is, my favourite patch has been cleaned out. Mm. Um, and in some cases, they would be right. Not all divers in my time were uh, conscious. There used to be people that would say things like, well, if I don't take them, the next guy would. Well, that's a self-fulfilling philosophy. Mm. No, let's not take them at all. Let's not wipe them out. And I, we had a guy called Dr. Jeremy Prince. He, uh, I first met him in Tasmania. He would come over here and preach to us, for goodness sake, guys, don't wipe them out. Once they're gone, they really struggle to reestablish themselves. Mm. You've got to leave a resident population there. Now, um, back in the day you were doing it. Yes, they had developed a technique for utilising power, which they'd go off to a factory and they'd bleach the things white. Yes. And they'd bleach them white because Asians expected their abalone to be white and they wouldn't eat something that was black and they'd bleach them white and stick them in a can and off they'd go to Asia, correct? Well, actually, they were bleached sort of an orangey colour and mm. in my view they tasted a bit like soap. Um, clearly I'm not a connoisseur of canned um, power, but the whole thing seemed wrong. And this was about the time that I started, the Labor government at the time was talking about le uh, level playing fields for everybody in New Zealand. I think this would have been in the mid to late 80s. And um, I went to Colin Moyle, who was the Minister of Fisheries at the time, and said, well, we haven't got a level playing field. Um, and I, you, you I, had to sell. You had to sell to these factories. We were only allowed to sell to three people: Rodney, uh, Watties, Sea Lords, and Salmon Smith Bylad. And you weren't allowed to sell to anybody else, including fish and chip shops. Unbelievable! It was unbelievable. Um, it was an absolute cartel. And it sort of is reminiscent of what's happening in the hemp industry today. And I'm not trying to digress into the no. hemp industry. I am noting the comparisons of the, uh, I mean, I said this the other day. Um, Einstein mightn't have been the first to say it, but he said that there's the two most abundant things in the universe are hydrogen and human stupidity. Yes. And we seem to have a disproportionate amount of human stupidity for a country that prides itself on this number eight wired approach to 
doing things and doing great and innovative things. And we seem to be crushing that um, these days. Anyway, Colin so, Moyle. So went to Colin Moyle. Yeah. Yes, went to Colin Moyle, and he agreed that we uh, could export two tonnes of power. Each applicant, you had to make an application, and uh, me and Dr. Jeremy Foley, we went out and got our two tonne. Well, Jeremy did most of it. Um, and we sent that to Mr. Ree, and we got paid 30 grand a tonne for it. At the time, we were getting 80 cents a kilo. So that was a massive increase. And uh, we sold the two tonne uh, to Mr. Ree, which was the next nearest was Salmon Smith Biolab. They managed to get 15 grand a tonne for theirs. And we used that 60 grand to set up the Abalone Divers of New Zealand Co-op. And that changed a peasant uh, subsistence business to an economic industry, a powerhouse, in fact. It absolutely did. And you said before that uh, you made some of them millionaires, made all of them millionaires. Yes. And it was interesting. I was going to a funeral of a diver um, a couple of years ago, and a guy walked up to me, and I used to have this saying, uh, and it was a cheeky saying of, but I made you a millionaire. Uh, um, and he walked up to me and he said, do you remember me? And I said, sorry, no, I don't. And he said, but I made you a millionaire. And I started to laugh. And I said, how old were you when I last saw you? And he said, oh, about 18. This is a 50-year-old man. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, well, of course I don't recognise you. I'm surprised you recognise me. Um, and it did. The, the downside of that was that none of us that were making that sort of money were used to that sort of money. Well, let's and go into that. Let's go into that, Matt, because. Um, and forgive me if I say the wrong thing in terms of my understanding is wrong. I know you'll never be offended, but I want to characterize and understand this because it's a great New Zealand history that hasn't been recorded. The sort of guys, and I think they were guys, who were power diving before it become rich, were sort of people like yourself that didn't fit into an office job. Yep. And were sort of like drifting around New Zealand, your quintessential Barry Crump type guy. Absolutely. around New Zealand who, like being out in the bush, uh, knew how to kill a deer, um, skin a sheep, all those sorts of things would think nothing of hopping on a boat and doing a week's work. And then, oh, I've got a few spare days. Oh, the weather's come. I'll go and grab some power. And living in many ways an outdoor glorious life, but living on a subsist subsistence pay, but answerable to no one. Absolutely correct. Cowboys. Um, I used to complain uh, when the shell buyers came around the fancy cars they were driving, the managers of Sea Lords, the fancy cars they were driving, and the wrecks we were getting around in those days. And I'm saying, there's something wrong with this picture. I can remember a guy who bought Powers and Nelson for Sea Lords, and he said the best way to keep a power driver working is when he comes up with his hand net, you hand him some money, and he'll go back down again. And they had this 
idea of how to get us to keep working for almost nothing. Now, I've always had the attitude um, uh, that the people that get their hands dirty should reap some of the reward significantly more than they most often do. So that was the motivating factor for me was, these are the guys that are doing the work. Why are you the only ones in fancy cars? These guys should have at least the ability to, to emulate you to some degree. Um, not that they perhaps want to. With the cooperative, yes. you were able to export directly, yes. not put them in a can. Were you getting them out fresh? Yes, that became the massive market going to Japan had never been a market. But the moment we started live export, Japan was their boots and all, despite the fact that they were black. They had no trouble with them being black at all as long as they were fresh. Mm. And so guys who had previously been earning, what, how much would you make pre this era for a day's diving? <laughs> enough to get enough fuel to, to go on the next trip and perhaps feed your family a wee bit. I used to say you never knew where your kids' next set of shoes were coming from. Um, but let's let's put a number on it. You would not have earned 10 grand a year. Okay. Once this market developed in Japan, how much could you make in a day? My best day was probably close to 200000 $200,000. Yep. Can you imagine that, listeners? that you have these cowboys, this is a glorious, this is a gold rush, right? Yeah. They went from being peasants. They weren't even respected by the fishermen because they weren't real fishermen because they just went out in their dinghies and swam in the water, not on top of it, and didn't bring in their big nets. The people that they were selling to regarded them as, well, a pair of hands. and Slaves. Yeah, slaves who were silly enough to go diving and risk their lives in the water with sharks and um, under some horrific conditions. And literally, to an outsider overnight, they went from having not knowing where their next meal was coming from or a pair of shoes for their kids to getting 40, 50, 100, and on one famous day, $200,000 a day in the 80s. Yes. And and in the 1980s, $200,000 would buy you two houses. Oh, no. If only I'd, <laughs> if only I'd bought two houses. <laughs> <laughs> so this was, this must have been an extraordinary feeling, Mac. It was, unfortunately, as I said in the video, I became very spoilt. I didn't think I was, but um, it's easy. And, oh, let's go fishing today, Mac. Uh, no, nah, I think we'll only make 30 grand. I think we'll stay at home. And if I didn't think we could make 80 grand in a day, I wouldn't go. Um, Bear in mind, this is this is... This is the early 1980s or mid-80s, I guess. Like, yeah. I bought a house in Christchurch, a beautiful house, for $100,000. You know, I, I think I was a junior. farm. Sorry? I did buy a farm. <laughs> Good idea. I had an airplane, 
Um, I, I uh, went in the West Coast. When we started getting the decent money and that sort of thing, I started agitating for this in the West Coast, um, and I was flying them out um, at 80 cents a kilo. I was really wrapped when that turned into 50 bucks a kilo, uh, which happened in the first two years. Uh, we were able to increase our, our turnover by 100% a year for the first five years, Rodney, because there was increasing demand and diminishing supply. So it was in that context that was quite different from the hemp because uh, it was it was in some ways quite easy. The downside of that was that uh, we were easy marks. Look, seriously, we were easy marks. Everybody um, continued to treat us with disrespect. Um, I think one of my infamous uh, things I remember is getting invited to Westpac's after hours, pink gin sessions, um, and thinking this was just normal. Uh, not realising we're putting $400 million through their bank. Of course they're going to to invite you along, Mac. I just didn't understand any of those dynamics, and I didn't understand uh, at the time. I was chair of the co-op for six and a half years. Um, it actually self-destructed like most co-ops do from the inside, um, and a lot of people will tell you that it needed to, and it probably did. And a lot of people would tell you that I had stayed on too long and I would be one of them. Uh, people that do things like I do, they're good for the scrap, if I can. Scrap's probably the wrong, but they're, they're good when, it's, when you have to fight hard to mm. earn your place, but they're no good in the mundane day-to-day -day way of doing things. Um, I read I read a great biography of the great General Georgie S. Patton, yep. who was a military genius and prepared his whole life, literally, for a situation like World War II, where he was magnificent and was always in trouble uh, with the higher-ups and wasn't given his head or petrol for his tanks oftentimes or fuel for his tanks. And he died at the end of the war in a car crash. And his biographer said it may be for his legend just as well because he was a man for the fight yeah. and he wasn't a man for the peace. <laughs> I, I agree with that. Not that I'm... Um... Uh, advocating violence. I'm no, more. But when there's a need the for a push, yeah. Yes. When there's a need for the push, and when there's and then the thing is, you have the push, and it's like you pushed the power industry into making it an industry, and then it needs management. Yes. And, and I wasn't the guy. Uh, and we actually had a meeting in Invercargill uh, where they were disbanding the co-op, and, and this was part of the internal destruction. And, and it's not my intent here to to make bad of anyone. Things change, and I should have got out um, probably 18 months before I did. Uh, and I said to them, oh, don't do this, guys. What else have I got? Uh, 
But the truth of the matter was that I would have been better to say, look, whatever you do, don't forget our founding principles, conserve the resources, and share it as much as you can equally amongst your fellows. Um, those were the philosophies that I set it up for. So I'd like to think they're still there. Um, I have met a few divers, uh, but not many these days. And I have seen that some areas, uh, like this Catlin's Coast, the powers are recovering really slowly, but they are. So mm. that's a good thing. The, now you were living with your wife and children. Yes. On the beach. Yes. How long did you live like that? Uh, we lived for well over a year like that. Um, uh, Alma had been uh, and had a mastectomy. She had breast cancer, and the doctors were horrified that I was taking her to live on the beach. But she wanted to, and the price was still lousy at that stage. But we had never had so much money in our life, uh, Rodney. I think we had three or four thousand dollars in the bank. We'd never had that. Um, and every time we went to town with a load of power, we all went. I had a J1 Bedford, and we'd all go to town. And on those days, sea lords used to pay you straight away. As soon as you got, got your catch landed, they would write you out a cheque. You could take it to the bank, turn it into money. First thing we would go is have a spa um, and a big nosh up, and then get a load of groceries and go back to the beach for another crack at it. It was wonderful. And your kids grew up. Wild and free. Oh, yes. It, what happened was the education department came uh, down to visit us because they didn't like what we were doing with the kids. The kids were um, four and five uh, and just on the verge of, well, not quite five. One must have been three and the other four. Anyway, by the time they got to the end of this windy dirt track to Purakanui Bay, they were fairly subdued. But they still came on pretty strong about, uh, well, your kids aren't getting an education and blah, 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 blah. So they knew the times tables up to the 12 times. Uh, so <laughs> they sat there and recited that for them. And then we had a blackboard in the tent and they wrote uh, short sentences and that on them, little stories of we saw a hedgehog with babies last night, stuff like that. Um, and the people from the education department, and there might have been something like SIFs, I don't know, at the time. They were pretty impressed, and they went away, and they never bothered us again. And then the money rolled in. And then we actually started to get the money rolling in, and that's when I bought the farm at Akator, Um and uh, uh, I was hardly ever home because I was up the West Coast fishing. Um, and that's also when our uh, marriage fell apart. Um, and that was all my fault. Um, none of it was Elma's. She was just a good um, good Kiwi lady. Uh, anyway, uh, yes, the money started to come in, and uh, there's a downside with the money too because that's when I started going, looking around for company mm. um, because I could afford it. And uh, I managed to convince myself that I wasn't being unfaithful because I was paying for it. 
I'm laughing. I'm not laughing because I want other people to emulate that. I'm laughing because of how I fooled myself into thinking I was still a good guy. We men have an amazing ability to convince ourselves that behaviour that we'd abhor in someone else is fine with us because we're slightly different. Yes, I'd agree and we with can that. Justify, we can justify working around the clock and being away from home. I know I've done this on the basis that you're providing for your family, even though yes. you're never there. And I think I was as good as that, if not better than anybody else. Mm. And it would be one of, most of the times I say I wouldn't change anything. I would change that aspect because mm. um, I don't think the people in my life deserve that. No. Um, and as we get older, our youthful exuberance and and testosterone fueled ambitions and drives, um, you can see through them, right? Yes, you can. I often get embarrassed by myself. I can remember in the in the co-op, uh, the guy called John Hanning. He was one on our board of directors, and. He used to make comments like, oh, that must have been written by Mac because it would say something good about me. Uh, and <laughs> it, it hadn't been written by me, although some of them were. And sometimes you look back at things and you think, well, that would have been good if someone else had written it. The fact that mm. I wrote it isn't that good. Mm. And I think... Some, I'd like to think that some form of humility comes in and you know that you only did this because of the people that acted as your wingmen. There's mm. been a lot of people over the years, uh, some that, that uh, we've wound up being uh, quite disagreeing with each other, yet without them, I couldn't have... Um, achieved any of those things. People sweeping up and people doing things that are more mundane to yep. uh, and making things happen that you've sort of pointed the ship towards. I get that feeling about you, Mac. I recall a funny story about why they, many reasons they call you Mad Mac, and no doubt you'll have some others that you can share, but I recall that you would take off in your aeroplane a little bit overloaded with power. A little bit? <laughs> And you'd be throwing the people would be throwing power out the window to keep the plane afloat. Yes, that's a falsehood. Um, in a Piper supercar, there's no room for anyone to be in there throwing powers out, including me. It flew like a brick. It had a, a, a payload of 180 kilos. I would easily put 750 kilos in it, and I was another lucky. half ton. Yeah. Yes, and um, uh, the beach at Pusica, which is where we camped, um, it was 1,100 metres long. So a Piper Super Cub will fly at 28 miles an hour. So you had a lot of beach, and I had an overpowered motor in it and a, a prop that was for pulling, so it wouldn't fly over 90 miles an hour. Uh, but it had a lot of toe, and it would get up and here, Rodney, and I would have three miles going across the sound to get to a 1,000 feet to get over no. the hill. 
<laughs> and I'm telling you, every time I did it, I'm thinking, why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? Um, it always got there, but eventually I stopped flying because I realised, I heard through the grapevine that all my friends down below in the fishing boats had a pool on which trip I wouldn't make it because it was that grossly overloaded. I couldn't land it at the airport. I had to land it at my brother-in-law's farm. Um, so some of these stories, uh, I think I said to you right at the beginning, some of them might even be true. And I've heard stories about me. Uh, there was one I was in the Hawea pub, and this guy was telling this story, and I heard the name Mad back. And I went over to him and I said, hell, that's a really cool story. Um, he sounds like Jack the Giant Killer. And he said, yes, yes, he is. And I said, do you know him? And he said, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and I said, do you know me? And he said, no, who are you? And I said, I'm Mad Mac. How do you do? <laughs> well, you were the cowboy of cowboys, Mac. Uh, it, 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 it was good. Like it was a friendly conversation in that. Um, but I've heard stories that it, with my name in them, if it, the name hadn't been there, I would say, who is this guy? Um, does he leap tall buildings and all that sort of thing? And, of course, I don't. But you do do things. And I think Kiwis are, are really good at building on the image. If it doesn't sound quite spectacular enough, we'll throw another yeah, thing we'll, in we'll, there. We'll, we'll, we'll bury Crumpet and make it a good story. <laughs> and um, I don't mind that. I mean, it, uh, for, for your ego, it's, <laughs> kind, it's so, just... Can you live up to the story? You would have had millions of dollars pass through your hands. Yes, I was a millionaire three times. Me and money have a very brief association. It's a shame that I have this attitude that it's only paper with ink on it because um, it's been feast or famine my whole life and it would have been more comfortable for me and those around me had I been a wee bit better at managing money. I think my attitude that it's just paper with ink on it doesn't help because um, I've got this awful attitude of, well, it wasn't that hard to make it. Mm. Surely we'll just make it again when it was hard to make it. You forget about all the agony you went through to get there. There's been more uh, lean times in my life than there have been times of plenty so, and, and uh, you must look at it and think, I dropped tens of thousands of dollars on that trip to Las Vegas, say, yes. and now what I'd give to have a hundred for dinner. Yes, yes, there's no question. Although, Rodney, it's fair to say that I've got no regrets. You can't hmm. change anything in the past, or I can't anyway. Um, all I can do is try and be a better person today and learn from my lessons. Mm. Uh, one of the farmers down the road said to me uh, a few months back, well, if you make it again, Mac, and it's looking like you might, what will you do with the money? And I straight up, I said, I'm going to spend it. And he said, what, won't you put any away? And I said, man, I'm 74. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> the great Georgie Best, the footballer, who was like the fifth Beatle, he was so famous. I love the quote of his because he is a terrific alcoholic and could still go out the next day and play soccer like no one had ever seen. And they said to him, because he ended up down his luck, Georgie, what happened to all your money? He said, 
Um, I spent it on, what was it? Wild woman, fast cars and something else. Wild woman, fast cars and horses, I think. And he said, and the rest I wasted. Yes. <laughs> and I think that, that's a really good analogy of, of how people um, live their lives. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed mine. Um, I had a couple of TIAs um, a few years ago, and um, uh, I was surprised at how unscared I was. Uh, TIAs are attempting to have a stroke but not making the grade. Yeah. So, uh, and that was uh, partly to do with my age, partly to do with the fact that I was still running as if I was 19 um, and that sort of thing, and I've got to stop doing that. And uh, that gave me a, a real life lesson of it's time to slow down, it's time to appreciate what you've got, and have a look at what can you leave as a legacy. And that's going there's to get this that's happening now. Yeah, well, but let's get to that. But let's just close off the air baloney because yep. they brought the quota system in. Yes based on your catch history for the last two or three years, I can't recall which. So if you'd been catching 10 tonnes a year, you'd get 10 tonne a quota. And that meant that from then on, you could catch 10 tonne a quota and that quota was tradable. And so uh, men that had been making good money as income then had that income capitalised into a quota right. Correct? Yes. And that made millionaires over and over. Absolutely. Uh, we couldn't believe <coughs> that the piece of paper was worth so much. And I think initially it was something like uh, $40,000 a tonne. And I can't quite remember what my quota was. I think it was something like 44 tonne. And there was another 11 tonne um, that they owed me but wouldn't give me. Uh, and today, it's half a million bucks a ton just yeah. for the right to catch it. Yeah. So that 44 ton would uh, have me really smiling today, Rodney. Well, that would be 22 million. <laughs> <laughs> and hard to, hard to think of when you've been diving for a few cents for, for power and being treated like rubbish on the wharf and around the pub and by the people that you're selling to, and then you start earning, well, I'm not going out until it's $40,000 a day. Yeah. And then you get a piece of paper entitling you to catch fish. And by the way, the quota system was fantastic because it put a cap. It put a cap on the catch. Um, and then fast forward, 20 million bucks, that bit of paper. Yes, uh, and that it, it is a regret of mine. I, what happened, Rodney, was this. We made a deal. I went to Wellington to speak to the United Maori Council because um, they actually took out an injunction so that our quotas couldn't be um, allocated. And I spent all day there. Matt Rata went to sleep. I thought he didn't hear anything, uh, but he woke up and talked, and he'd heard everything I'd said. Um, I met a lawyer lady there, and she said, we've been waiting 150 years for justice, and I put my hand on her shoulder and I said, well, you look really good for your age. And <laughs> I could tell she was undecided whether to haul off and smack me one or laugh. In the end, she gave in and laughed. 
And eventually, after a whole day, Sir Tippany O'Regan said, we're going to give you what you want, Mac. Because my argument was, we'd done exactly what the government required. Half of our members are Maori. Two wrongs don't make a right. So him and I went down to Justice Craig, Craig uh, at the court, and um, he said, we want to lift the injunction and allow these guys to be issued their quotas. However, when the government finds in our favour, the industry has to provide that quota at cost to us. And all of our guys were really delighted when I got back. Uh, it was amazing. Before I got back to Dunedin, um, other people were claiming that they'd done it. They hadn't. I'd done it because I wasn't a suit. I was just an ordinary bloke up there saying, give us a fair deal. Uh, anyway, um, when it came time to pay up, when the government found that 18% uh, was owed to Naitahu, our guys wouldn't come up with the quota. Fortunately, I had enough quota to cover the lot. So I gave Naitahu, or sold Naitahu, the lot. With retrospect, I would have kept at least 10% of that had I been putting it on an ordinary market. But I felt on a bound. I made that deal, and our guys didn't care. They just decided. And I don't think it was because they're nasty. It was just they just didn't want to comply with it. We didn't make the deal. You did. You find the quota, which I had enough to find. So that, um, in today's dollars, you gave Donato who millions? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I think they paid me uh, around about 500000 for that and my fishing boat, which was a 40-foot um, speedboat. And, and, and how many tonne of quota did they get off you? 44 tonne. You sold the lot? Yeah, that's what they were owed. Oh, my God. Yeah, not because I'm a good guy, because I was honour-bound to that. Well, I might be a good guy, but it was more about honour-bound. We're talking to Donald McIntosh, uh, Mad Mac, and you're on Reality Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. We're talking power, life, adventure, ups and downs, and hemp. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned. We've got more coming. You're listening to Real Talk on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Uh, Mad Mac, um, Donald McIntosh, power fisherman, set up, the quota system was being set up, dispute with Maori who had an injunction on for their claim. Mad Mac did a deal and needed to give a across the quota. Now, my memory of it is quota at that time, before the scheme even came into place, was selling for something like $14,000 a ton. Uh, it's now selling at half a million dollars a ton. The industry wouldn't surrender their 18%. I think you said the figure was, Mac, to Natahu for their share because they couldn't expand the cap. It was to come out of their share. So it was to be surrendered to Natahu at cost. And so 
Donald McIntosh, because of a handshake with Satipani Oregon, sold 44 tonne quota, which was his life's work. And he would be an extremely wealthy man, never need to work again because other people would fish his quota. He sold that to Natahu, plus a beautiful boat, 40 footer, for $500,000, which today is worth $22 million, just a quota. Oh man, Mac. And you did that, you say, not because you're a good person, but you're a man of your word. Exactly. Um, uh, uh, I'm feeling a wee bit edgy about this because I don't want to big-time myself. Uh, no, we're not big-timing yourself. We're actually reminding ourselves, and it's important. We're not trying to up you, Mac. What we're reminding ourselves of what it is to have honour and integrity. That's all. And in that case, I support uh, what you're saying because I think that's something that's missing at the moment. It's it something is. I miss dreadfully. Common I miss sense. Dread- I, I miss it dreadfully, the fact that you could say to someone and your bond was your word. Yeah. And, and it was a good time to be alive when that was the case because you had confidence. You did. And you knew you could move through the world with trust. Yes. I've got a lot of stories like that. I'll share this one with you because you're making me think of these great men when I talk to you, Mac. And I mean that genuinely. I'm not saying you, I'm not upping you. I'm just saying men of integrity. The the great Charlie Upham, VC and Bar uh, in World War II, amazing, amazing uh, soldier. And he asked for leave when he was in. Burnham, I guess, before heading overseas. And he never fitted in as a soldier um, for similar reasons, round hole and a square peg. And his commanding officer said, why are you, why are you going? Uh, what do you need leave for? Up him? And he said, oh, there's a fellow I need to beat up. <laughs> and the officer said, why do you need to beat him up? And he said, well, he bought my car off me and didn't pay the money. And I know which pub he, and the guy says, to you, the officer said, you know where he is? And he says, yeah, yeah, I know which pub he drinks in. And he says, oh, he says, um, <laughs> I'll give you leave for that. And Charlie Upham went off. And when he got back to base, the officer had him in and said, how'd you get on? Did you get the money? He says, no, but I beat him up. And that is a way that you and I understand, isn't it? Yes. Yes. And now you don't even like to trust someone when it's in writing. I'm specifically distrustful of uh, government departments. And, and we, should, we should have great faith in them. Um, the same as with doctors and people like that. I was having this discussion with uh, an acquaintance the other day of, you know, we we trust doctors and that. Well, now we trust some doctors. Um, well, you 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 and I are we on the same page that that whole COVID thing was bullshit? Ah, uh, pretty much. I've never. Tra- 
worse than something government created. Never. Um, uh, and I've always been a conspiracy theorist. Me too. Um, I am now. Uh, yeah. Uh, um, however, um, I personally think that some people have gone a bit far with it. They're blaming everything on yes. it. And it's like for years that doctors used to blame um, cancer on smoking. Well, it may well have been a contributing factor, but I think mm. genetics and that probably play a bigger part in it. And that's because I've had, uh, not myself, but people around me um, who've been non-smokers and doctors seem to be lost when they can't blame smoking. Yes. Uh, but isn't, there, isn't that a thing, though, that through that COVID experience, whatever your thought on it were was, and this is what tipped me over, you couldn't express it and have a debate and discussion about it. You were smothered. Yes. And that's when you smell a rat. The bit that I disliked about it was it showed me how much freedom we haven't got. Yes. Because they were able to lock every one of us up who were the victims of no crime. Yep. We had committed no crime whatsoever. And for our own good, we were locked up. That freaked me out. Um, me out. Like we live out in the middle of nowhere, Ronnie, uh, beautiful scenery, all that sort of thing. So life really didn't change for us. It only changed when we went to do our annual, uh, our weekly uh, grocery shopping. The, and I've said all the way through, well, I don't agree with a lot of the extremism. Like I've got friends now that say things that I don't concur with. And it's along the lines of this. Oh, everybody that's going to be vaccinated, they're dropping dead all over the world, don't you know? So yeah. what? You actually want me to drop dead to prove your theory about the government and the conspiracy is right. That in itself is bad. Yes. Um, I, I think you've still got to have compassion for people around you. What I am is I'm a pro-choice. You have the freedom to choose what you want that's to right. do. And that's um, why I will. I can never now support my party, the ACT Party, because I can't support anyone that voted to lock me up. Yeah. I mean, that's impossible to me. Um, and then when I query it, I just get yelled at, and I'm thinking, hang on. And then I went to Parliament, and got even more abuse and no one would meet with me because I had concerns about people. And I have to say, Mac, I was, I didn't think, I looked at the vaccine, so-called, and I thought I'm not taking that because there's no way they can know whether that's safe and effective. And I think it's my choice. And when they started to bully me, I, I got my back up. But I didn't think, I didn't think it would hurt people. I couldn't get that into my head. And when I started to hear that people were hurt from the vaccine, I didn't believe it because I thought, you know, people are getting sick all the time. Um, we always want to blame something, moan, 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 whinge, whinge, whinge. Oh, my God, Matt, when I went to that protest, 
I met the vaccine injured and the people that had died, family, their families, and the proximal thing of literally getting the vax in a perfectly healthy person, becoming unable to move, terrifically sick, that's real. I don't know why it's only hit some people. Maybe it was the batch. But when I met the people who were injured, Mac, they were workers like you and I. They weren't whingers. They were real people. They, 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 they were people who had worked every day of their life laid low. And then I realized there is something odd. I don't know the numbers. I don't know how bad. But certainly, Something's gone wrong. And um, if it was a conspiracy theory or something, if it was misinformation, what I just said, it would be easily answerable by the authorities. Um, and it's not. And um, something went wrong with that jab on people. And um, there are definitely people that are badly injured and strangely, I had a lady visit us yesterday, doesn't know about me, didn't know about my radio show, didn't know what my views are, and she started to talk about how sick she's been. Yeah. And I said, what do you think caused that? And she said, oh, it was the, uh, the doctor said it was the vaccine. You know, and I said, did you report it? Oh, yes, 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 it's all, the doctor put it all into the, Calm. She's a young mother, you know, who's terrifically sick. And they actually can't even figure out what's wrong with her. Yeah. She's got so many things. But I do know what you mean because it's a bit like once you think that they can mislead you to that extent, you're in danger of believing anything. That's the real issue that I've got. I think what what has happened with this is that it's it's exposed a real anti-government feeling. Yes. Uh, and I'll explain it. Look, I often say to people, I vote for the people I hope will do me the least damage. Yes. What I would like to see as a legitimate vote, and we'll never get it, Rodney, I know that, is none of the above. Yeah. Because I don't trust any of you. No. Because you stop representing me the moment you start representing a party. And I thought MMP was going to get rid of that, but it isn't. It's actually made it worse. Yeah. So, look, I've got stories like that too. Uh, There's a guy down here. I was in at uh, Catlin's Country Store, um, and he had this most terrible skin condition. And I said, "What's, what's the problem with that? And he said, I've had two vaxxers. The third one did this to me. Um, anyway, um, uh, I was able to help him, and I can't really say why because the Ministry of Health. Um, yes, you're not a doctor. I'm not a doctor, uh, and <laughs> you're not a scientist. I, I have sat in front of them, though, Rodney, and said you're criminally negligent because you have denied people access to things like hemp tea. You're letting medical cannabis companies, uh, because they're spending hundreds of millions of dollars, and what was the first thing they came out with, Rodney? Hemp tea. What was the prescription? 
boil some water, put it in a cup, put a teaspoon of um, a powdered hemp leaf in it. I knew that in 2001. I didn't need to spend $200 million or get a prescription to do it. Tell us about the hemp industry. How did you get involved in hemp? At the end of my fishing career, I was um, on the Federation of Commercial Fishermen's Council and all that sort of thing, and I um, wanted to move on. And I had... um, there was a, a documentary put out by Barbara Chabocki uh, in the National History Film Unit in Australia called The Billion Dollar Crop. And I couldn't believe it. I actually had the money, so I went over and I visited her. And I also went to Tasmania and had a look at these people growing um, uh, growing the hemp. Now, look, I was a child of the 60s. Uh, um I'd never been frightened of marijuana. Uh, I I think I've explained to you that I'm a recovering alcoholic. I, I'm, I get high on life. I don't need anything uh, to get me high. Just being alive and happy and having another day of sunshine or rain. I particularly like rainy days, which is kind of strange, but I think it lets you know you're alive when you're out there and it's freezing cold and you're getting wet and all that sort of stuff. So anyway, the, the, I was looking for something else to do. So I immediately uh, imported a um, uh, hundred of these Emperor Wears No Clothes of Jack Hera and uh, I started giving them to politicians and the police. And um, then me and 15 mates up the Awaka Valley, we set up the NZHIA. Uh, we never incorporated it at that time. So this is the uh, Industrial Hemp Association of New Zealand. Yeah. Yes. I was chair of that for 29 years. Um, I gave it up three years ago, uh, partially the same as the power because I thought it was time to move on. But I was also becoming very focused on the people in the South Island and particularly in the bottom half of the South Island. So we set up the New Zealand Hemp Collective. Um, I had my company, Hemp Seed Holdings Limited. Uh, So this is what drove me into it. And the the more I looked at it, the more I couldn't understand as an agricultural nation why we weren't utilising this plant with the multiplicity of end uses. It made no sense to me whatsoever, Rodney. So I spent the money that I still had some of at that stage and started to find out. And then I, in 1996, I decided to leave here, this house, and go and buy a house in Wellington. We bought a house in Newlands. I wanted it to be relatively close to Parliament and I thought it would take about 18 months to get the hemp legislation in place. Well, it didn't. It took a lot longer, and I had to, uh, me and my wife at the time, we helped fill it a buckle, um, collect signatures at a big music event in uh, Auckland around, well, it must have been well over 10 years ago, maybe even 15 years ago. Uh, anyway, she said to me, if uh, I'm ever in a position to do you any good, I will. Six months later, she was Minister of Customs, and I got a phone call. And this was this was one of these lovely times of my life. 
I could actually ring a minister in wow. her office up and make a point. <laughs> anyway, um, she set up the interagency working group in the Ministry of Health because that was the only uh, place they could think of to put it at that time. Because remember, the only thing they knew about hemp at that stage was it was marijuana in their minds. Yes. So, well, that was uh, what I was until... I heard Richard Barge and interviewed Richard Barge. To my mind, anyone wanting to grow hemp was just trying to surreptitiously grow marijuana, and I apologise, but that was my view. And that's understandable. We we had a lot of um, uh, information coming out that said you were right to think that. Um, and we like to think that that information is trustworthy and that we can rely on it. So anyway... Um, uh, at that stage, I was the only one agitating, and I used to go and camp on uh, politicians' doorsteps. And what are you doing here? Well, I want an appointment with you, and you won't give me one. <laughs> Can we get security to remove him, or would it be easier to give him an appointment? Well, in the end, Jeanette Fitzsimons, Philip DeBunkle, Rod Donald, um, and there were a few others. Uh, they gave us some time. I did uh, talk to Winnie the Poos. Um, he didn't seem to be here nor there. I still don't know where he's at. Um, but anyway, we thought we were making progress, and we were. Um, the thing I had to do was first prove to them that it wasn't a drug, and then we got administered as if it was a drug. The legislation is called the Misuse of Drugs Industrial Hemp 2006. It implies that you're doing something wrong right yes. from the beginning, and I protested about that, but at least we were making steps forward. Now, the interesting thing is that uh, the manager of MedSafe at the time that ran the trials was Claire Vanderlem, and her partner, Tony Vanderlem, was um, a senior policy analyst for uh, MPI. Now, given that uh, the chair of the working group knew that MOH knew nothing about an agricultural crop and had been to university with Tony. He was called in to become uh, the knowledgeable input, and he was absolutely great. Now, the interesting thing is, fast forward 22 years, and Tony Vanderlem is the managing director of my company, Hempseed Holdings Limited, the only company in New Zealand that's created five generic New Zealand cultivars, and this was because I knew a guy called Professor John McPartland, and he wanted somebody to work with uh, the seed stock that he had, and nobody in the world that was a real scientist wanted to, so I took it on, and, uh, yeah, the first 15 years I didn't make much progress, Rodney, but... Over time, I got to know what I was doing because it was another thing I took on that I didn't. A lot of people think, oh, yeah, you had a misspent uh, youth. You'll have grown heaps of dope and that. No. <laughs> I had no idea. No idea at all. All I had was a desire to, uh, I because I imported the first lots of seed that came into New Zealand. The first lot from Hungary, which was Compulti and Unico B, and others from Canada. 
the Hungarian stuff turned out to be no good because they had no worries about its THC 10 content, and it came back at 5.2%, so we had to abandon those as cultivars. But uh, we were starting to move forward, and the trials kept getting extended. Filler de Bunkle, of course, got tossed out, supposedly, I think, for shoplifting. Um, I personally believe it's because she had um, hemp curtains <laughs> in her government house, but I don't know why it was, which is a shame because uh, she really put herself on the line mm. and you and I might not be having this conversation if it hadn't been for her. Uh, and she seems to have been forgotten by the modern industry, such as it is. Anyway, um, uh, things were going great. It looked like we were really going to rock and roll. It was bad. The legislation was awful. Um, you had to uh, prove that you didn't have any drug convictions, have a police check, and Tony was the one that said there won't be video cameras on tripods, there won't be guard towers, it's ridiculous, this is an agricultural crop, and over the first five years of us growing this, we will come to know that, and at that stage, the legislation will be revised and reviewed and moved to another um, area, such as standalone legislation not covered by the Misuse of Drugs Act because it isn't a drug, or somewhere else. Unfortunately for us, um, what happened was medical cannabis come along. And it's, oh, the Ministry of Health loved it. This is a drug. Um, so, and it's got hundreds of millions of dollars and everyone's going to be skipping down the street singing yee-haw, um, we're all going to be millionaires and the amount of people I've had come up my drive and tell me that they're going to become multi-millionaires. One guy tried to tell me he was going to make $8 million a month out of medical cannabis. And I said to him, you know, that's just a number. Where are you getting these numbers from? Um, you know, who is your market? That's got, you know, this $800 million has got to come from somewhere. Then. They put the medical cannabis legislation in place. Now, Rodney, this is my truth. I don't know whether it's the truth, but my belief is that Tilray in Canada, most 85% of their product goes to the recreational market. They are the biggest medical cannabis producers in the world, and 85% of their stuff goes to the legal recreational market. Um, and I think. That's what all these companies in New Zealand were rubbing their hands together. We've got a referendum. Um, we're going to kill it on the recreational market. Um, I can't. And just to be clear, just to be clear, uh, Mac, um, by the way, you're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. We're talking to Donald McIntosh. Mac, as we call him, or Mad Mac, as his friends call him. And we're talking the hemp industry. And the hemp industry, nothing to do with the drug. That's a hard thing to get your head around because it's got all these other uses, like plants do. And it was a plant that was used for centuries um, for everything from fiber to, to health products to, to food. And yes, 
uh, you can have a cultivar that'll give you the drug and you can harvest the drug, but that's not what we're talking about here. At the same time, just so I've got this clear, Mac, you were getting the hemp industry up and running, nothing to do with the drug. Parallel to that is coming along this, oh, we can harvest cannabis and you can smoke it legally or eat it legally and get high and we'll run this industry. And I imagine this is where the wires got crossed. Absolutely spot on, Rodney. I like the way that I don't have to explain much to you of of how we wound up in such a pickle. Uh, We were there well over 10 years before then. If you ever go to court, it's first in, first served to judges, and we haven't had the money or the resources to go to court, but I'm picking that uh, over time we may well have to if I'm unable to use this election year. And when I say I, it's the royal I, it's yes. the hemp industry. I don't kid myself that. So that. they had the referendum. The referendum failed. It's surprising everyone. And the political interest in hemp fell away. Yes, and, and that's epitomised by MPI giving money from the Food and Fibre Fund and not pocket change, millions to a medical cannabis company, and that money should have gone to ensuring that real farmers were growing a real... If there's so much money in medical cannabis, why do you need government money? Mm. You know, you're all saying that, that there's squillions of dollars in it. So they came up with, uh, and I can remember the chair uh, uh, of the interagency working group saying to me, because I presented to Cannabis and Health in 2001, and this was on the basis of my first wife died of uh, cancer, and uh, she was on morphine, and uh, um, uh, she wanted off it, and the nurse said, if your family can get some cannabis for you, and they did. Uh, and I said, you don't need to, to legalise it for medical cannabis to, to uh, be legal. You uh, simply have to put the, the legal structure around it so that it can be prescribed for people. Anyway, they didn't do that. We got Satyvex at that time and that was all. Um, and then Philida Bunkle, for whatever reason, got chucked out of Parliament. But then medical cannabis came along, and the reality is this. There is a market for the high THC stuff, the stuff that makes you laugh at movies that aren't funny and raid the fridge and that sort of thing, the stuff that gets you high. But the vast majority of the market is in CBD, which has no psychoactive properties whatsoever. Mm. CBC, CBN, terpenes, flavonoids, all of them have a positive effect um, on your life. Uh, Some people say to me, well, cannabis is cannabis is cannabis. Well, no, a car is not a car is not a car. You know, Mm. what sort of car is it? Is it a Suzuki Swift? Is it an American grunt machine? Like a, um, oh, Mustang or something like that? Uh, is it a ute? All sorts of things. Um, they're not the same. And it's bothered me because uh, people won't like me saying this, but I think that industrial hemp is 
I think you're quite right. I think it has been used for justification for recreational, whereas mm. they should forward their own argument. Don't mm. drag industrial hemp down uh, with this. Stand alone on your factual data and leave hemp alone. Now, the reason I say there is no real ca um, medical cannabis industry is they rely on those CBs. What's high in them? Not recreational, industrial hemp. And why have they put things in place to try and control the whole of industrial hemp? It's because they want everything. They want the roots, they want um, the leaf, and they want the seed heads. We want to turn them into foodstuffs. High-protein um, foodstuffs, good for your health, all that sort of thing. Uh, no possibility of getting stoned on it. So why don't we just get on it? And it's interesting, in the European Union, they've just made hemp tea legal um, without a prescription. Here, we're still dithering around. They haven't gone far enough, but that's the nature of politics, isn't it? Uh, so what we've got here is a situation where not only is the Ministry of Health uh, disabling the industry, but because they want to own the industry, the Medical Cannabis Council is strangling it as well. What's wrong with your normal business practice of just coming along to us and saying, we want to buy some of what you produce and here's what we'll pay for it. And they won't pay much because they never do for, with commodity prices. Um, and if you want to turn that into a medicine, away you go. But leave us out of it. We're not wanting it to be a medicine. And I the use this. That, that the hemp industry in New Zealand is, just so I'm clear, and correct me if I get this wrong, the hemp industry in New Zealand is being regulated and controlled as if it were medical cannabis. Yes. And what you're saying is, this is, we, we're food and fiber. Yes. We, 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 that would be like, oh, I don't know, taking strawberries and saying, because there's some little thing that you can use in a strawberry to make a medicine out of, you come under MedSafe and you're, 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 you're regulated as medical. And a guy that's trying to grow strawberries for the market on a Sunday is suddenly being treated like he's um, producing a drug. Yes, uh, uh, that's absolutely right. Look, there's small amounts of GBH in wines, um, Rodney. Those, the Ministry of Health is saying one molecule of THC in industrial hemp makes it illicit. Well, then why doesn't one molecule of GHB, which is a date-break drug, yes. um, and wine, why doesn't that make wine illegal? No, it doesn't. And this is why I say the, this: there seems to be a madness associated with the word cannabis because our reality doesn't seem to kick in. It's a bit like we were talking about earlier with the COVID. Um, it seems that people will believe what they want to believe and what yes. suits their particular approach well, to I would have, until a week ago, used hemp and cannabis interchangeably. And and that's my mistake. And it's just where you land. And, of course, we never look into things. We sort of give a cursory glance 
uh, of the headline. And then if a government was thinking of legislating hemp, I'd be thinking, oh, God, and we're going to have stone kids at school. Not yes. understanding the fundamental point that there's this plant that has a multitude of uses, has had a multitude of uses forever, and got declared unlawful the entire plant yes. because of a particular product that can be produced from that. And in actual fact, the plant that you grow for hemp and food doesn't even produce that product. Uh, that's, you're exactly right. My, uh, my first cultivar, Aotearoa 1, it normally comes back with a THC test of 0.056 of a percent. Wow. That is so minute. Um, that, you know, we're going to be breathing in with stuff in the air that we breathe in cities, all that sort of thing. Well, you, I'm wouldn't not saying, get high, you wouldn't get high if you ate a hay shed full of it. Not a possibility. You, now, you would die of overeating before yes. you got any effect. Now, what you're a man of uh, vision, uh, you are a man of science, and you're an action man, and I'm interested... What is your vision of what the hemp industry could be in New Zealand? My vision is uh, I heard you talking to Richard Barge the other day that you'd read the five-minute guide, which we co-wrote, and um, uh, I also heard you suggest to him that we should change the name, and believe you me, we have thought about that. Yes. Um, but I don't think it will be. My vision is that it, its rightful place in New Zealand, I don't know what it is, will be worth, but I know it will be significantly more than it is now because of the multiplicity of end users, because forest research made it into disposable cups, edible takeaway food containers, credit cards, blah, blah, blah. They did all of that. That's only the beginning of Kiwi innovation. I've always had this saying, Rodney, you don't know what's under a rock till you turn it over. And we, a thousand good ideas die every day because people get treated like halfwits. And some of them probably are. But, I mean, every halfwitted, there's probably a thousand halfwitted ideas for one that's actually going to go the distance. Yeah, but you let a thousand daffodils bloom, right? Exactly. And the, I think we're inhibiting the natural ability of Kiwis to actually get on and do things um, and actually create wonderful things. What will they be? I don't know. It would be nice in a hundred years' time if someone said, oh, there was a guy way back. Uh, what was his name? Mad Mac. He created this cultivar. And now we um, have got a field out there that is producing, and by the way, that's his grandson or daughter or whoever over there um, not for, like I've said this before too, Rodney, if it was anything else, I'd be so bad back now because it's cannabis. <laughs> not that I specifically want it, but there's a lot of people that get these titles that have been paid all their lives, and there's a lot of other people doing a lot of work around that could benefit New Zealand. So what do I want to see? 
or what I what my vision. My vision is that it takes its rightful place. That these ridiculous impediments are taken out of the way. It gets standalone legislation outside motor, outside MOH. It's got nothing to do with you. We don't. If we want to make medicines, we'll make an application to you. And we'll. And by the way, the difference between the licenses. Five. I heard Richard tell you five hundred and eleven for a hemp license. 23000 for a medical cannabis licence. So no wonder they want to make heaps of money out of it. But so and far, course, it is, Rodney. Of course, you have seen a parallel with the power industry. Yes. Which was almost nothing to this significant industry. We can reflect on things like you and I, when we were growing up, there was a thing called Chinese gooseberries. Yes. And it was a nothing business, right? Yes. And now look at kiwi fruit. Yep. I mean, it's extraordinary. And your point is you have this amazing plant that historically has had a wide range of uses going back centuries that was cut off by legislation in the 30s following the scare about uh, marijuana. Yep. And none of us are advocating marijuana smoking. What we're saying is the plant. And this plant has far more uses than a Chinese gooseberry vine, right? Yes, very definitely. Because it's got that's, food, fiber, medicine. That's what New Zealand everything. farmers need. Do we yes. really need to be planting a billion pine trees when we can? sequester CO2 with this thing, and it yeah. does it in four months. Yeah. And you make a beautiful coat out of it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, um, the the whole thing is I don't know where it will go, but what I do know is that Kiwis are really good at doing this if you give them free reign. You've yes. got to let them go. And at the moment, they're being caged up and not capable of expressing their abilities. And as I say, I have no idea what some of the things, I've had ideas and made things over the the years and that sort of thing, but I'm sure we can do a lot better. Um, Like hempcrete is a significantly better product all around it would seem, provided the R&D is put into making that uh, an acceptable building product to mainstream Kiwis. They don't even think about it. Yep, that's what I'm going to use. It breathes, it's blah, 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 it's great for my uh, uh, for my new house, so I'm going to use it in there. Medium-density fibreboard, same thing. Um, but we have to take the first step, and we'll never take it until politicians are actually able to understand what's trying to go on here. I know that what the attitude you described, I know that's the attitude that they've still got. It's not until you get close to people. I had to get close to Colin Moyle's PA in the power industry, and I got close to a few, um, Annette King's PA and Philida Bungle's PA, and we all know the Sergeant Majors, um, you know, are pivotal to Armies running smoothly and that sort of thing. And if you can get on board with those sort of people, then eventually the politicians might start to understand. 
But at the moment, we're a long way from that, Rodney, and that's quite sad for me. Um, put aside the fact that I could claim that I've wasted 30 years of my life, which I haven't, but you want it to get there. And one of the things I asked Damien O'Connor at the first hemp summer, can you get us out of motor and out from the Misuse of Drugs Act? Yes, but it's complicated. Damien, that means you don't want to do it. Absolutely. That's what complicated means. And, and, and I've known him since 1996. I met him at a hemp meeting in Motuaka in 1996. I actually thought that when he became the minister, he would be helpful. And for a start, he said he would be. He said he would sort um, out uh, the Ministry of Health. Six months later, when I asked him why he was doing it, he called me a whiner. <laughs> well, well, I asked you why you hadn't done what you said you would do. Uh, Minister, but uh, um, not wanting to load all the blame on one person because it's a cultural blame. It's um, our societies uh, to blame, and and partly it's the name to blame. It would be really good if we could call, um, I don't know, we could call him califragilistic. Or, um, or marigold. Yes, marigolds. Uh, it's it would be a, a, it's been a wonderful morning with you, Mac. And I hope you'll come on the show again because I don't think we've scratched the surface of your life, but more particularly, we're only scratching the surface of hemp and its uses and scratching the surface of the madness of the way it's caught in this legislative deadlock, and a huge potential for New Zealand. But I do want to thank you for sharing your life with us. Um, people can find that video. They probably, what would they have to Google to find that video of you? Yeah, it's easy enough to find. Just type in Mad back in the Flat Ugly Snail. It comes up. That's this right. is another interesting thing, you know, Rodney. Yeah. Um, I was famous in China. And the US because of that video. The only no. place I don't appear to be famous is <laughs> Well, the video is great, right? Uh, so you Google, Google, I'll put a link to it uh on the on the webpage for Reality Check Radio to uh Mad Mac and the flat, what is it? Flat ugly, ugly snail, which is power, flat ugly snail. It's a fantastic video. Thank you for sharing uh with us. Um Donald McIntosh, Mad Mac. Uh, what a life. What a story. Um, he makes the rest of us look timid and boring. And there he is at 74, full of vim and vigor and full of laughs. And that's why Mad Mac is going to win because he can laugh and he can enjoy things. And God, the dear old souls that are holding him back and holding New Zealand back and holding the industry back, they wouldn't have a laugh in them. They wouldn't. They, I can't imagine. They suck the joy out of the room. Uh, send us, you're on Reality Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Send us an email, inbox at realitycheck.radio. Send us a text at 2057. Uh, what a great story. You're listening to Real Talk on RCR, Reality Check Radio.
here on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Remember, send me a text, 2057, particularly on our next topic, because we'd love to have some questions from you, or send me an email, inbox at realitycheck.radio. I'll be upset if you don't. And so too will Tane, because it's our session for Politics Explained. Back to basics in the political sandpit. Good morning, Tane. Good morning, Rodney. How are you going? Oh, uh, so good. You know, you make me go back years and years and years because you asked me political questions, and i got to sort of stop and think a little bit because um, for me it's it's a long time ago, and when I walked out of Parliament, I never looked back. And funny enough, it was only the COVID rules that got me back uh, anxious about politics again. So um, it's very nice because you take me back to what I see as another life. So far away, what do we got this week? Right. So this week we've got two questions because the first one is something we've kind of already covered a little bit and we should be able to wrap it up pretty quickly. And the second one is a little bit more controversial. So the first one is... How would you explain to someone voting for the first time this year the difference between the party vote and the electorate vote, and what factors should they take into consideration when making those decisions? Yeah. Well, politically, uh, and to whom forms the government, the only vote that counts is the party vote. So from a party's perspective, they are totally indifferent about the electorate vote. They do not care. And in a funny way, uh, they get upset if seats they don't expect to win, <laughs> they win. Because what that means, they actually gain an MP that they didn't particularly want in Parliament that wasn't high on their list. And they lose someone on their list uh, that they wanted into Parliament. So from a party perspective, um, it's only the party vote that matters. Um it's hard to believe because when you go from first past the post, the only vote that counts, of course, is your electric vote for your local MP. And when you're sitting there, you think it's a big deal, your electorate vote, but it's not. Uh, essentially, the MPs a party are entitled to is determined by their party vote. What the electric vote determines is the composition of those MPs. So, for example, let's imagine that you get X percent of party votes and you're entitled to 20 MPs. Well, you'll get your 20 MPs if you get no electorate MPs. If you get 10 electorate MPs, you'll still only get 20 MPs. You'll get 10 electorate MPs and then 10 off your list. Uh, if you get 20 electorate MPs, that's all you'll get. And so it's the party vote that determines the strength of your position in Parliament and who gets to form the government. There's one exception to the rule, and the exception is parties like the Maori Party, the Green Party, and the ACT Party, and potentially other smaller parties, because they face a hurdle of getting 5% of the party vote. Now, if they win their seat, if they win an electric seat, that hurdle is broken. So they'll get, if they got, um, well, I'll use me as an example. In 2005, we were facing oblivion. And I made the claim that if you vote for me, not only would you get me as your elected MP, you'd still get Richard Worth 
who was standing for national because he would come in on their list. Plus, you'd get two or three other ACT MPs. So you could give your electorate vote to the national guy and get one MP or vote for me and you get four, five or six MPs. And that's true, as bizarre as it sounds. And it took me a great deal of convincing of voters that the smart thing to do was to give their electorate vote to me. And indeed, um, I succeeded and Richard Worth still got into Parliament. I made it to Parliament. The ACT Party made it to Parliament. And we had three or four, no, I can't remember, maybe two MPs. I can, yeah, two MPs. And so two MPs uh, were working towards um, Epsom. So they actually had three MPs in a funny way. And then in 2008, we were able to get more MPs. So for the smaller parties, the electric vote um, is a strategic vote. So what should you think about? Well, under MMP, you should give your party vote to the party whose policies you most like, full stop, as long as you think they're going to be in parliament. And that becomes a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy because if you give your vote to a party that doesn't make it to parliament, in a sense, you'll feel a bit cheated. Uh, you might give them some comfort and you know, people might notice what they were saying, but I doubt it. The, 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 world, the New Zealand is littered with the carcasses of failed political parties. So the uh, party vote is to the, to the party whose policies you best like that's going to make it into parliament. And for your electorate vote, um, you want to vote for the person who you think would best serve you as a constituent. And that might be the one that's already there because you've had some interaction with them. And it's always quite good if you can go and see your MP and remind them that you voted for them. <laughs> it means that they'll listen to you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I had actually a, a follow-up because I that we hadn't planned to cover, but is there something to do with in terms of inside a political party structure how uh, an MP is treated if they're a list or an, or an electorate MP? Like if they're a list MP, they can kind of get – get rid of them, right? But if they're an electorate MP, they... Oh, yes. Oh, yes, 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 yes. I mean, um, there are great examples of Labour MPs. Uh, George Hawkins was one. Um, gosh, I'm thinking of the other name. And under MMP, they were sort of conservative MPs. And Helen Clark hated them hated their politics, didn't <laughs> want them in, but they had very strong electorate organisations and she couldn't get rid of them. And so, yes, um, e electorate MPs are very powerful within the caucus because if they've got a secure base, they can't be disciplined. They can be shoved down the list, but they'll still get in. Um, what they'll do, and we've seen this in recent times too, where MPs have effectively been uh, had their electorate candidacy contested and lost um, because the party machine is kicked in behind them. So within that, within the um, party structure, it does matter. And of course, within the ACT Party, David Seymour is very powerful. Not only is he leader, but he holds the only seat, which means he breaks the 5% threshold. Um, so he's got more power than uh, most leaders as a consequence. Um, 
I should say that your behavior changes. I was a list MP for several terms, and then I became a constituent MP. And I felt the difference immediately because when you're a list MP, it's sort of abstract who your voters are. You know, you're a 5% party or a 10% party or even a 40% party. You don't particularly meet your voters. They are sort of anonymous to you. But when you have an electorate, when you have this geographical place that you represent, you feel driven to, well, I did, to be the best MP that I could for this area because these people had put their trust in you and that affects you deeply. And then when you walk down the street, you're saying hello to the people who voted for you or who you would like to vote for you. You don't get that with as a list MP. And being an electorate MP makes you humble and it makes you more conservative because you're aware of the wide range of views that exist in your electorate. Mm, big difference. Well, Shall we move on to question two? Yes, please. Sure. So the next one is, why do rural areas tend to vote right wing and big cities tend to vote left wing? And this is not just a New Zealand question. You, as I'm sure you're aware, it, it occurs in Australia United States, and so on and so forth? Well, the people typically, and we're talking, you know, in general, um, so it's not a specific example, but in general, if you live in a provincial area in New Zealand or a rural uh, area in New Zealand, you are typically a producer. You're making things, you're growing things, um, or you're helping those that do. And you're very, very conscious of production. Um, I grew up in a provincial town. My father was a truck driver. And our whole world revolved around things being built, um, things being grown, things being transported, motors being fixed, um, and work being done. And things that made it easier to get work done was a good thing, and things that got in the way were a bad thing. When I went on to become a university lecturer and live in a city, you become detached from production and you become more conscious of distribution. And there you have it, the difference between a socialist uh, outlook and a capitalist one. Because if you're working as an accountant or a lawyer or a university lecturer or a, you know a teacher, um, you become less aware of production and more aware of numbers on a spreadsheet or something like that and its distribution. There's another difference, and that is if you live in a rural provincial part, you learn to back yourself and to trust yourself in order to get things done because you have to. If you're a truck driver and your truck breaks down, you've got to figure out what to do. And so you become more resilient. 
and you appreciate resilience in others, and you appreciate resilience in yourself, and you don't like dependency. When you live in a city, you are very conscious that it's sort of a bit arbitrary even keeping your job, if you know what I mean. You're working for some faceless organization where you never even meet the boss. And you become insecure, and you're conscious of your interdependency, and you're conscious that if the supermarket doesn't have food, you're going to starve. Whereas if you're in town, you'll go out and kill a sheep <laughs> and eat that. So you become a, a more dependent person and less aware of production. You become more interested in having a safety net than backing yourself um, to look after yourself. And there's a third feature, I think, and this is you know pretty speculation, but polling tends to suggest this, that if you're involved with your hands and production, you're humble. And you're very conscious of experience and what experience teaches you. And you respect older people that have done the job many years because you go fencing and there's an old time fencer and you're a new time fencer and you think you're hot stuff. You're going to hit a problem. And you're going to think, oh, I don't know what to do here. And then the old guy will come along and he'll tell you what to do. And what that means is you're very conscious of what has gone on before. And so you're conservative. You respect institutions. You 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 find yourself doing things because that's how granddad did it. And, and, and he would have done it for a reason. When you live in a city, it's very easy to be arrogant. And it's very easy to blame others. And if you're working in an office, it's a great example because, you know, you can strut around an office being, you know, king of the heap and and being able to uh, shift blame, not take responsibility. We've all seen this working in a large organisation in an office. And you all, you, you it comes with a hubris. You know, you think you're good at your job and therefore you're good at everything. And you start to think that you can make the world a better place because you're so clever. And then the next thing that happens, it's automatic, is you start looking down your nose at provincial people, the deplorables, the rivers of filth, because um, they aren't uh, successful like you, where in fact you're just full of hubris. And time and time and time and time again, how often have we seen university professors, legal experts, political consultants, and they pontificate about what everyone else should be doing? Whereas a typical provincial person are doing what they're doing, trying to do their best, consciously often get it wrong, and have humility they wouldn't think to be telling other people what to do. Takes a university professor who does nothing to do that. That's yeah. The difference in some between the cities voting left and the provincial and rural areas voting centre-right. Yeah, the first time I noticed it was uh, in a graph that had been circulating online of the 2016 
or 2020 United States election, which showed by county, mm. um, red and blue, Republican versus Democrat, extremely obvious. If you look that up, you, you'll see it. Mm. I thought of a few extra points to, to, to make. What do you, I mean, the funny thing is, though, they've got this plan to hurt us into smart cities. So as people are moving into these smart cities, that's going to basically mean more left-wing culture, left-wing voters, theoretically. Oh, of course. The entire apparatus of government, the entire function of Westminster, of Washington, D.C., and of Wellington is to tell the rest of us what to do and to make us utterly dependent upon them. Why? Because they're the philosopher kings. They're Plato's philosopher kings. They've been to university. They've got PhDs. They've done degrees in sociology. They know they are experts. And so every policy that's formulated is always formulated with the goal of giving Wellington or Washington or Westminster more power and making the people more dependent. And as you give Washington and Wellington and London more power, and as you make the people more dependent, the vote shifts from centre-right to centre-left because people lose confidence in themselves. And so things that we used to do ourselves with our families and our community, we now rely on government to do for us. And it's a long, long list. We can no longer educate our kids or bring them up or even care for them. Uh, we can no longer build a house because, you know, we wouldn't know what to do. We need government to advise us. Uh, we we have a view that um, people can't look after themselves, and so government will do it for them. It's It's the most extraordinary thing. It was brought home to me very dramatically as a minister one time, one particular moment, when after the Christchurch earthquake, I was, half the schools were out, and I was advocating that we just fund the students and they could find their own school with their parents' help. It might be, you know, they go to Christ College because it wasn't badly hit, or they actually go to a hall and teachers there congregate and start teaching. And I was getting great enthusiasm of this from my National Party colleagues. And the Ministry of Education was pushing back very, very hard with all these objections, which I was able to bat off very easily. And then finally, it came to a crunch point, and the Ministry of Education said to myself and my cabinet colleagues, but this would mean parents would choose for themselves which school their kids go to. Can't have that. Can't have that. And you know the shocking thing? The national ministers all said, oh, no, gosh, we couldn't do that. And that brought it home to me. Fundamentally, that's what it is. And, of course, they can always point to the case where someone made their own choice for themselves and it turned out bad. It was a, a mistake. And so because you can make mistakes, it's better that government does it for you. But, of course, government is just one enormous mistake without anything to compare it to because it doesn't allow the comparison. It's it's monolithic. And, of course, we would get a, a far better outcome if we funded students 
to go to the school of their choice, whether it's private, public, or whatever, than actually having a top-down system that says, here's your local school, go to it, and um, everything will be decided in a combination between the teachers and the ministry and the politicians and parents and their kids' needs don't count. Hmm. The other point I thought I'd make is that rural people who live in generally rural areas are on average going to be more connected to the land, to nature, and so their views and beliefs are going to be more um, lined up with nature. And yes. then... And the people in the cities are more, on average, subjected to the regime propaganda. And yeah. the regime propaganda is for more of what we would define generally as, quote-unquote, leftist ideologies. It's very disgusting. I tell you the great example of that to me was the River of Filth and the parliamentary protest, because there's been protests on Parliament forever and a day. But they've all always been wanky and that they'd turn up if it was fine, and if it started to rain, they'd rush home, and they'd stay there for a couple of hours and do a performative protest and, you know, in the modern era, take selfies or get their picture taken by the the TV and the Wellington News and then disappear, job done. But that river of filth, that was actually people that don't normally protest. That was provincial New Zealand. And in the cities, of course, there are effective provincial people who are tradespeople and they turned up and they weren't going home. They didn't care that it rained. They didn't care that Trevor, uh, God, I've forgotten his name. Mallard. Mallard turned the sprinklers on and played loud music. They reveled in those sort of little problems and they were capable. They could cook. They could get food into the parliamentary grounds. They could plumb toilets. They could organise their own security. The organisation and the spontaneity and their ability to look after themselves and others, that's what shocked Parliament. Because the Parliament, the MPs and the journalists, they couldn't do any of that. They're useless. They actually can't look after themselves. I know I've been one. I mean, I couldn't look after myself. I had to come out of Parliament and start again like I'd just left school and teach myself to be able to look after myself. I loved it because I've always appreciated that. And, you know, now I can I can grow food thanks to Wally. I can fix cars thanks to having an old dunger. Um, uh, I can cook. Making bread. I make bread because I've taught myself. But if you're – when I was a um, – when I was a minister and an MP – when I left Parliament, I didn't know how to book a flight. The first flight I had to make, I didn't know how you book a flight on Air New Zealand. I'd never done it. Isn't that extraordinary? It's extraordinary. Um, I'm embarrassed to admit that now. Um, we might no, cut that out. Uh, no, 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 leave it in. It's so fantastic. <laughs> it's so funny, right? Because you know, I was looking and I was scratching my head. How do I had I, I used to fly several times a week and yet I'd never book tickets. Crazy. Crazy. Can't and relate. so when you see when when the parliamentarian saw provincial New Zealand, and I'm using that, there was a lot of provincial New Zealand. You know, we saw we saw those farmers turn up with a hay you know, and walking amongst them carrying more hay in each hand than um, 
a small ute could put on the back. You know, these guys just walked in with this hay looking so knowing what to do and outsmarting the politicians. That shook, I know, that would have shooken me if I was in, in Parliament because you're thinking these guys and these girls, they aren't going home. And there's nothing we can do to them to shift them because they're better than us. And um, they had to end that protest because having declared them all trespassers, every minute that protest, had la that protest lasted, it was a message to the rest of New Zealand that the laws that they make only work because we follow them. And if we choose to ignore them, they no longer work. It was a scary moment for our parliament and our, and our government mandarins because they were in danger of literally losing the country and losing all authority because you're standing there saying, you know, um, little tin pot Caesar saying, go home, go home, and say, no. <laughs> what do you do? Yeah, yeah. It's a good note to wrap it up on. Thank you, Tane. Well, that was uh, Politics Explained, Back to the Basics in the Political Sandpit with my young friend, Tane Webster, who's like amused to me because he asks me these questions and he gets me thinking about politics again. You're on Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. It's Reality Check Radio. Please send me a text, 2057. Send a text for Tane to ask and for me to try and answer. If I've got it wrong and you've got a different view, send me a text, tell me, or send me an email at inbox at realitycheck.radio. Thank you so much uh, for listening, and Tane will be back next week. Yep. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. My favorite bit of the show. We got the mailbag to open up. And it gives me always such a buzz and such a joy to receive your texts and your emails. Please, I'll hold it against you if you don't text me, 2057, or email me, inbox at reallycheck.radio. What have we got? Here from Roger. Great and disturbing talk with Roe Edge today. I've sent it to all the good people I know, the woke too. <laughs> good on you, Roger. We've got to meet, we've got to talk to the woke. Uh, from Lynn, I heard some poor soul trying to have a sensible conversation with Sean Plunkett about the Google News initiative and the fears he held for furthering censoring of MSM News. Oh, okay. Uh, well, Sean's got a, a style that a combative style, which in many ways I enjoy, you know, because it's edgy and an argument and a debate. Um, it's not my style. I like to let people have their say more and to question them, to draw them out. Um, I don't think of... Uh, interview is a debate between the host and the guest um, because that's not how you treat guests. That said, some of the best moments in radio and TV have been a hot debate 
uh, between a host and a guest, and sometimes I've enjoyed Sean's. Just not me. Andrew, I, hi, Rodney. I was listening to your show with the lady about talking about the new law on the 15th regarding gender change. I noted several times both yourself and the lady mentioned about the birth certificate being a form of ID. This is incorrect. If you look at your birth certificate, it specifically states it is an offence to use it as an ID, something many folks aren't aware of till it's pointed out. Another weird thing is that it is illegal to use as ID. How come you can use it to get your passport and other licenses? Well, thanks, Andrew. Someone else pointed that out too. I don't know the answer to that. Um, I knew it wasn't an ID, like going to the pub, you don't flash your birth certificate, but it must have some significance. And obviously it has a significance <laughs> if it says you're a boy or a girl uh, and you were born that way, uh, even though, how do I put this politely? At the time you were born, the good doctor looked at you as a little baby and said, hmm, boy misgendered you, and so years later, you have it changed to say you're a girl, and I would say from that moment on, legally, you're a girl, and if anyone wants to argue with you, you show them your birth certificate, but you're a girl, again, how to put this politely, with all the features that had the doctor assign you to be a boy, if you know what I mean. I struggle with it. I struggle with it. And I, yeah, I struggle with it. I can't understand that at all. And I, I struggle with it so hard, I can't imagine anyone thinking that's a good idea, even though you respect trans people and people's choices. I struggle with that being seen as a good idea by anyone and yet 120 MPs out of 120 voted to that. Bad enough it's a thought by one person. 120 people. I just don't understand it. I must get an MP on to have them explain it to me. Uh, this is from Alan. Heard the interview regarding endometriosis. Very powerful and great for me to hear as her story echoes my daughter's journey. She's the same age, but no husband, nor can she keep a job because of the EDS. It helped me appreciate my daughter's journey, but not sure what she can do next to ease her journey. Well, thank you for that, Alan. And it's often the way, isn't it, that sometimes there's nothing that can be done, but just sharing it and hearing it and hearing of others helps to just to know you're not alone and that um, people care. Hi, Rodney. I hope this, oh, this is a longer one, and it's from a person who I'm going to have on as a guest. So I'll skip that one. Uh, it's a lovely one. If I'd known how lovely Rodney was back in the day, I would have voted for him instead of those traitorous greens. Well, that's very, very kind, but um, I think it's a lot easier to be a nice guy out of politics, if you know what I mean. And I also think that you get painted by the media as a caricature of who you truly are. And I'm always nowadays, as we look back on our recent history, reminded of that 
shocking observation of Alexander Solzhenitsyn, which says, after suffering and seeing and witnessing the worst that humans can do to each other, to say that you can't divide the people into good and evil because good and evil run through all our hearts and it's just where the line is. And I think in politics we like to say there's good and evil in people and the great thing about being an MP, oh, you, you see your team is all good and the opposition is all bad. But when you're an MP in the parliament, you actually see good and bad in everyone there, if you know what I mean, because you, you see them more as people. Um, but anyway, very kind. And I think it's, I am a better person outside of politics. That's true. I love what I'm listening to. Another wonderful morning with Paul and now Rodney, I'm in my favorite place. So sweet. And me too. This is my favorite place. Hi, Rodney. What shop is Wally the Garden Man from? Oh, he's online. If you Google Wally Richards Garden, it'll hop up, or it's www.0800-466-464. .co.nz, I think, or .com, or you can just ring him, 0800-466-464. Um, he loves talking. He told me that someone rang the other night to confirm an order and he's chatted away to them happily for an hour. Uh, so give him a ring, 0800-466-464. For your information, Rodney, the water distiller takes five hours to get four litres of water. Yes, I, I think I know that, four or five hours, but I think it would be still worthwhile because I'd just set it to run like overnight, that's why I asked Wally how loud it would be. It's $300 because I'm seriously thinking of getting it. My only reluctance is bench space for me is a premium. I haven't got much. And the last thing I need is another thing to be managing on my bench because I've got a bread slicer, small bench, bread slicer, jug, coffee machine, wheat mill, knives, and that's half my bench gone. And I'm thinking, I can't fit in there a fil filtration plant as much as I'd like one. At the moment, I'm just boiling water each night and then letting it sit. It's not as good, of course. But if I had more bench space, I would get one. Indeed, I want a water filtration plant. Can you please send me information on the strawberries that Wally talked about this morning? Yes, I will send you his email, Yvonne, and you can sign up to his um, weekly email, which is wonderful. Someone's apologizing regarding my Thonberg comments. I completely missed your point. I think I was declaring her a saint, but sarcastically. Uh, for Rodney and Paul, great shows this AM, such quality info. Thank you. Paul's great. You're great to listen to, Rodney. Ah, oh, I think I sound terribly and I mangled my words, so thank you for that. I was just making some sourdough. Still very much a rookie here, but remember, this is something you like too. I love making sourdough. I've made sourdough bread 
virtually every day for 10 years, maybe nine years. And I've never got sick of it. And it's never been a fag. And I've experimented and tried all different things. To be fair, it probably took me six or seven years or six years to get produce a good loaf. And every loaf's different. And I could have learned to do it in a day if I'd just been prepared to ask for help. But I struggled away experimenting on my own. And so I didn't even know what a good loaf was when I started. And a lot of it's just a little bit of technique that if you're showing once, you get it. And I watched a lot on YouTube, but I couldn't quite get the technique, particularly for when it is fermented or over-fermented. And I always over-ferment my flour and therefore don't get a nice rise. And then shaping it is technique, just getting that nice loaf shape. Tastes good, though. Either way, it just doesn't look as good. Brilliant interview from Brenda with Bryce. Listening to the fiscal situation leads me to think the plan is to bring the country to its knees and build back better. Maybe Jacinda and her WEF friends would help us with that. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, sometimes do think that um, they are trying to wreck everything because that's the effect of what the decisions are that are getting made. And it's hard to imagine that they don't, the people making these decisions don't realize it because we can see it, can't we? Yeah, we can. That was mailbag. Uh, please send me a text 2057, email me inbox at realitycheck.radio. I'm so pleased people are enjoying the show because. We are loving it. Everyone in Reality Check Radio is absolutely loving it, and I would say none more than me. Thank you for listening. You're listening to Real Talk on RCR, Reality Check Radio. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. And so the latest outrage manufactured in the Herald and by our government is that our waiting lists your place on your waiting list is going to be determined in part by your ethnicity. And the Herald has spoken to surgeons off the record and anonymously, no, anonymously, not off the record, and they have said they're not happy because they have to order people on their uh, waiting list according to their ethnicity. I don't know how you do that, actually. Like, you're weighing up different things. And what is your points scheme? You know, you get um, three points if you're screaming in agony, uh, five points if you're beyond the screaming part of agony and comatose, and four points if you're Maori. I mean, how the heck does that work? How do you weigh those things? It should just be medical need, should it not? The health bureaucrats have pushed back and said, no, no, ethnicity is just one of the five things that you look at. And I've made a list of the five things. It is clinical priority, which is we what I think we would think should be the only thing that matters, i.e. medical need. The next thing that they say you need to look at is time spent on a wait list. So someone might have a higher clinical priority, 
but here's someone with a lesser clinical priority, but they've been a long time on the wait list, so we'll do them. Well, that's politics because the minister doesn't want or the government doesn't want people too long on a waiting list. So we'll bump someone who's really, really needing it to deal with someone who doesn't really need it as much, but they've been there a long time. Oh, you get points if you're in an isolated area. I don't know why that would be. So if your postcode is, you know, what whops, you're ahead of someone who's downtown. I don't know why that would be a factor other than politics. And then, of course, we have ethnicity that matters. Oh, are you a little bit Maori? Well, we'll put you up. Yeah, we'll pump you up because um, you're a little bit Maori over this person who's in desperate need. And deprivation level, that means poor. Again, I don't see why that should matter. Um, I would have thought the only thing that matters is clinical priority. How long you're on the wait list? Well, if you're not urgent, you're not urgent. Uh, isolated area shouldn't count. Only need priority. Uh, ethnicity certainly shouldn't count. And whether you're poor or not shouldn't count. Should it? Now, I don't look at the story possibly the way everyone else is because I look at the story as just a continuation of what's been going on for years and years and years now in New Zealand where we're being divided by race. And I look upon it as our politicians doing this deliberately and stoking racial tensions. And I look at our New Zealand Herald as now reporting the story and stoking a racial tension, and yet having supported all the policies that led us precisely to this place. Let me explain. I don't think it matters what your father is or does or did when I'm considering you for a job, to be a friend, to marry. Because I look to you. And that's how we believe we should think. That is to say, we judge people by what they do, not by what their parents do or did. Famous example that springs really to mind is John Banks, whose father was a, a criminal, and he risked not getting selected as an MP. But Sir Robert Muldoon, overrode the party and said, no, he's a good guy. We shouldn't judge him by his father. I agree with that wholeheartedly. Sometimes, in the back of our minds, we carry a, mm, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. 
And if someone's got a badly behaved dad or mum, we'll check them out a bit harder, a bit firmer, to see that they're okay. But the principle stands that we judge people by who they are, not who their father or mother is or was. Certainly, we don't judge a person by who their grandfather was. We can't stand that. Oh, their grandfather was a great man. And you're his grandson. Oh, so what? Or your grandfather was a terrible person, therefore you can't have this or do this or take that job because of your grandfather. That has nothing to do with you. But for years and years and years and years, who your great, 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 great grandfather was has mattered. I might have overdone the greats. I might have underdone them. But like Maori and Europeans have been having babies together for 200 years. So there can be a lot of greats in there and you still be a Maori, right? Still count. One drop, one drop of blood, that's all it takes. We like the old South. One drop and you're a Negro. And therefore not entitled to be a full citizen. Well, one drop in New Zealand and you're special. And so I don't even like and have always reacted sharply to our government even asking us on forms whether we're Maori or not, because I think it's irrelevant to any question they would ask or any piece of information I would want my government recording about me, who my great, 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 no. I can't think of anything good that's come from a government recording and dividing people by their race or any good reason to do it. I'd be happy if someone could email me or text me a good reason to record people by their race and separate them by our government. Of course, we're proud of our origins, Scottish, English, German, Polynesian, and are interested in our history. Of course. It's exciting. It's fascinating. But it's not a statistic that the government needs or should have, is it? And of course, we've taken those, and they're particularly fake in New Zealand, especially fake in New Zealand, because we've had such a great history of intermarriage, which I love, because it breaks down barriers and differences, and shows clearly we're all human, one species. We can fall in love with each other and make beautiful babies and children and grow them into wonderful adults together. So why divide us? Why separate us? And no sooner do you start collecting those statistics and you start noticing 
statistical differences. Oh, this is bad. And then we start attributing those differences at an individual level, which is wrong. Absolutely wrong. Just because I belong to a group that has X or appears as X or does X more often than this other group doesn't mean I will. Because that group, my heritage does not dictate who I am or what I do. I do. Of course, culture hangs heavy over that. Upbringing hangs heavy over that. But that too is a choice. This might be a choice that my grandfather or mother and father made. But even I can escape that, the bad bits, and do better, like John Banks. So I've never liked the separation. But you know, what's the next terrible thing to do as we take these differences and attribute it to race like it's a binary thing and an explanatory variable? Oh, zero, one, zero, one. Oh, there's a one over there. Oh, there's a zero. Marry, non-marry, marry, non-marry. Oh, and if you add it all up, there's a difference. Oh, it's inequitable. Oh, what can we do about that inequity? Oh, I know what. We'll make different rules for different people. And that's where we are with this. But this has been going on for decades. So there's always been a tap on those that could go to medical school, big commitment by the government of resources. And so it used to be done on your marks. Work hard, study hard, be smart, get to medical school. And then they entered, then they said, oh, we've got these health inequities. So if you're Maori, you can get in with a lower entry level. So non-Maori would be pushed out by every Maori getting in under the quota. It's disgusting. And of course, we know the non-Maori getting in might have been along a lot of greats. You know what I mean? Didn't look very Maori. So because my great, 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 great grandmother is Maori, and your great, 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 great grandfather isn't, I get into medical school with poorer grades than you. You're a better candidate. I get in because of my great, 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 great. How mad is that? How divisive is that? How disgusting is that? That is truly disgusting. And why wouldn't you be resentful if all your life you've wanted to be a doctor and you've worked so terrifically hard to make it and you don't get in because you don't quite make the cut? But your student colleague does, even though their grades are less because of ethnicity. That's just fuel to a racial fire of a division that doesn't exist. Doesn't exist. We're all humans. It's, there's no 
explanatory difference in our DNA to allow that. And yet doctors and surgeons, New Zealand Herald have gone along with that. Oh, it's good. In fact, anyone questioning it is a racist. And so now we have it in order to improve equity because when you look at statistics on average, Maori don't live as long and are not as healthy as non-Maori, but a lot of Maori are superbly healthy. A lot of Maori are superbly fit. A lot of non-Maori aren't. So the average doesn't explain much, actually. But because of that average dif dif difference, if you're a little bit Maori, you can jump the queue. So grandma misses out, whereas that young person over there gets in. No, that is wrong. That is so, so wrong. And please, please, don't blame Maori for this. It's like Maori shouldn't blame me or you for their situation. That's what the Maori elite want, the politicians want, the bureaucrats want. They like it if we're a little bit divided. But I fear that's what government is doing to us. Our anger should be directed at our politicians and our bureaucrats and the Maori elite and the experts who believe that there's significance in race when there is none other than that it's interesting. Certainly is not an explaining variable of my behavior or yours or any Maori, that they make it so. In fact, when you read the newspaper, you'd think it's the only explaining variable for why social statistics are what they are. When it's not, it's everything else almost. And so don't let it divide us. Don't get shocked by this particular one. We should be looking at it as a system and asking ourselves, do we want a system that divides our nation and our citizenry by race or not? And if it's not, they shouldn't be collecting those statistics. And how weird is it? I'm happy to say I'm male on any questionnaire because I think that matters compared to being female because there is such a big difference. <clears throat> Can't do that. Even the school teacher at my 12-year-old school apologized to her when she was doing an exam or some test and it only had a male and female box and he suggested to her that you could just tick a third box if you wanted to make one. <laughs> Because the actual real difference doesn't matter, but the one that doesn't does. Crazy, crazy, crazy. We shouldn't buy into it. We should reject it at every opportunity. I am a citizen. I'm a human being. I'm not a racial statistic for anyone. Send us a text, 2057. Email me, inbox at realitycheck.radio. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. On Rally Check Radio. Thank you for being along this morning. You've been listening to Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. 
on RCR Reality Check Radio. Here on Reality Check Radio, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. And boy, have we had some real talk today. I was honoured to have Mad Mac on, Donald McIntosh, and to have him share his life with us. And you can't imagine a Mad Mac now, can you? Everyone seems a bit snowflakey, including me, uh, compared to that. Out in that wild sea, diving for power, living with your family on the beach in a tent, living hand to mouth, building an industry, well, building a business, then an industry with hundreds of millions of dollars, making millions, giving millions away, spending millions, and back on the beach in a tent. It's a remarkable story by a remarkable man, and we're blessed to have him amongst us and uh, hear his story, um, warts and all, because in a funny way, big men have big faults, don't they? And it's their sort of faults that make them endearing. Um, they're not like the rest of us who sort of go through life muddling along. Big men, big faults, big mistakes, and they keep going, just like Mad Mac keeps going. Uh, thank you for joining us. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on Reality Check Radio. I feel very privileged to be with you today. Talk Thursday.